Good morning. It's good to see you this morning. Thank you for being here. We are going to jump right into this series we've been working on. I'm erasing John 11:35 because we did it last week. Anybody want to add one? What's something you'd really like to study? Always been curious about or a passage you love? Genesis 32, do you say 22 through 32? Is that Jacob wrestles with God or God wrestles with Jacob? All right, I'm hoping we don't, don't land on two this week. <laughs> it's a really good one. Now, there's some stuff we can dig out of that. Um, so, you know, we've hit two two weeks in a row. And the odds of that are like 1 in 144. To do it three weeks in a row would be, what is that? 1,400, 288, about 1 in 1,700. Like you could spin that wheel every day for five years and that should happen once. Is that right? But we're already two-thirds of the way there. So, And I just last week, by the way, last week, it is funny that we hit it twice in a row. And I mean, really, like 1 in 144. Um, but there was somebody here for the very first time ever, like visiting for the very first time. We hit two again. We did John 11, and he stopped me out in the lobby afterwards, and he was like, John 11 was for me today. And it was like, I mean, he was certain that God had picked John 11. Um, and it was, we had a good conversation, and he, he, he was just saying, he's like, I was dead like Lazarus, and God brought me back to life. Um, and so that was a really good moment. So whichever one we hit, we know that, that we're supposed to be there. But this is also... It's like we've got this whole list now, and I was only planning on doing this for four or five weeks, and I know there's all these passages that you'd like to look at, but it stirred up a thought in my mind. Let me find somewhere where I can write. It'll be down here at the bottom. This may spin off, and I didn't even mean the pun there, into another series of, like, if there, when we stop spinning the wheel, if there are books, texts, sections of the Bible that you really would like for us to study together, I'd love to hear from you. And so my email is andy at a church for you. Can you read that at all? Dot com. It's just the website, but andy at a church for you. Dot com. If you want to email me, like anything that at some point, doesn't mean we do it in three weeks or anything, but that you would like for us to look at. And especially if I hear the same thing several times from some of you, I'll start just thinking ahead and planning out. Hey, we may work through this whole list. Or we may work through some new stuff you suggest. Um, and so I'd love to hear from you anytime there, basically because that's, and that's also on the website, all of our email address, addresses are, but because they're on the website, we get like a thousand things of junk email every day and spam. And so like a real email from a real person would be great. Um, so feel, for, feel free to send anything you want to suggest that we study. Andy at a churchforyou.com. And then I'm going to have Emory come up here and spin, and we'll see where we are today. And then we'll talk for just a minute um, about why we're doing this. Emory, you can come on up, sweetie. She's leaving her blanket. So that, that blanket that she's got, this is the first time she's been out of it all day. She was underneath it in her bed. She got up and kept it on the couch till we left, and she wore it down to the van and wore it in here. Second time you've been out of it? What was the first time? I got too hot. Oh, you got too hot for a minute? Yeah. Second time she's been out of it all day because she got too hot the first time. All right, we're going to start on one this time. You want to start on two? Okay. Whatever she says. All right, spin it. Here we go. 
Oh, my word. We got past it. Twelve. That was yours. All right. Thanks, sweetie. All right, we're in John 3 today. John 3. It's just been meant to be for us to be in John. I'm going to do all of John 3. I'm, I'm going to try something. I'm terrible at doing two things at once. Like, terrible, terrible. So I'll probably mess something up and just tell me when I mess it up. But I'm going to try to talk to you with an illustration while I do this so you're not just sitting there. Um, so we've been watching the Rocky movies. It was time to introduce the girls to Rocky. It was, just, it was, it was time for me to watch them again. And you know how some stuff in life, like, I can't, I can't do this. You know how some stuff in life, like you remember it, you think back, and, and you're like, man, that, that was great. Like, those movies were great, that, that just my memories of it, it seems so great. And then you start thinking, it wasn't really that good, was it? Like, nothing could be that good. Those movies can't be that good. It can't be the way I remember it. And then you watch them, and you're like, oh, yeah, it is. <laughs> like, it's not just the way I remember it. It's even better than I thought it was. Like, there's things I appreciate now that I didn't even know to appreciate then. So that's been my experience the past few days, and by the Rocky movies, I mean one through four, like the real Rocky movies, the original Rocky movies. And I promise there's a point. So how many of you have seen Rocky four? Uh, like enough of you. If you haven't, I'll try to give you the quick rundown here. And it was set, like, height of the Cold War, you know, United States and Russia, and, and it's crazy how appropriate some of it seems right now with the stuff that's going on in the world with Russia and Ukraine and all that. But in the movie, Russia has developed this, like, ultimate boxer <laughs> and, and trained him and maximized how to train an athlete to box, and he's going to box Rocky. And I'm trying to not ruin it, just in case, I know it's like 35 years old, but in case you end up watching it and seeing it, there's stuff that happens that motivates Rocky to agree to go to Russia to fight this boxer. And he gets there, and... Rocky starts training, and it keep, the movie keeps like flashing back and forth between Rocky training and the Russian training. And the Russian's in this high-tech indoor facility, like with an indoor running track and this elevated treadmill, and they're shooting every kind of substance into him, and, and all these machines and computers and technology, and they're reading everything and monitoring everything and just maximizing everything about him from a technology and training standpoint. And Rocky's in a barn, and there's snow and ice outside, and he's got uh, like an axe to cut down trees and a saw to saw the logs. And he's lifting like a sled and pulling people in it. And he's hanging down from the loft of the barn and doing negative sit-ups. And he's running through the snow and the ice. And uh, you know the, the Russian's on an inverted treadmill and Rocky's climbing a mountain. And all, all Rocky has is like the equipment in that barn, his you can call it his heart or his will or his determination, like the guts that wins every fight for him in every movie, and then his people. Apollo's trainer is there with him. His brother-in-law, Polly, is there with him. And then like halfway through his training, Adrian, his wife, shows up, and then like he's really got what he needs, and it goes to a whole nother, like his people are there, and she shows up, and he's ready to train. And I was watching it, um, and I actually I'd watched part of it with Darren Foster a few weeks ago, so it got me started. I, I, we've got to go back and watch this with the girls now. Um, and it, it just it clicked for me, and it was like, this is exactly, like, I mean, exactly a perfect illustration for, in all seriousness, what we're trying to do as a church. 
Like what I really believe that God wants us to do in terms of if he's going to unleash his church to make disciples. It's stripping away all the fancy stuff and stripping away like all the, 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 the trappings and all the, you know, all this stuff that, that we kind of come to believe in our culture, in our church. Like you need this to do church. You need this to attract people. You need to do this to build a big crowd. You need to do this to build momentum. And this is how you market this. And this is how you plan this. And, this is how you... and it's like, no, you don't need any of that. You need the Spirit of God, and you need the Word of God, and you need the people of God. Like, that is how God builds His church. That is how God reaches the world through His people. And, and we're trying, like, as much as we can to really intentionally say, let's strip everything else away. Because even in the movie, Rocky basically says, I need to be out here isolated. I don't need any distractions. I need to focus only on what I need to be doing and only what matters. And he's got his people there with him, and he's got the equipment he needs, and he's got his heart and his will, and it's enough. Like, you can't duplicate that. You can't make that no matter how much technology and training you have. And we're trying in a really intentional way, especially during this time right here, to strip everything else away and say, hey, we're not trying to be impressive. We're not trying to be entertaining. We're not trying to be well-polished. We're not even, right, right now in this series, we're not even trying to offer you preparation in advance. We're saying we really, we really believe the Spirit of God, the Word of God, and the people of God are how God's going to do it. And so let's do that and nothing else. And so that's why we're spinning this wheel. And I've prayed again, just so you know, I've prayed again that God would send us to the text that He wanted us to be in today. And I've prayed that He will show you and show me the things He wants us to see today about Him and the things He wants to say to us. And He'll tell me what to say and He'll tell me what not to say. But that all of this would be us saying, look, because here's the deal. If that's all it takes... Anybody can do this anywhere if they believe in Jesus. If the Spirit of God lives in you, God has given you His Word. He gives you His Spirit if you believe in Jesus. And we are His people when we believe in Jesus. And it's like, you can stick Rocky in the middle of Russia, in the middle of the winter, in a barn. He can train anywhere, right? He can do this anywhere. That's all he needs. Give him his people, give him his equipment. He's got his heart. And I mean this, wherever God places you in your life, in your neighborhood, in your home, on your sports teams, in your school, at work, with your friends, like all these places where you already are. This is how God intends for you to make disciples, depending on him and prayer. Just the simple sentence of people of, hey, let's pray together and ask God to speak to us out of his word. Reading the Bible together, focusing on God, saying, what's this teach us about God? And now what's God want to do in our hearts? How does he want to change us? We need his grace to do that. Let's ask him to do that. We're doing that during this time to really just keep hammering. This is what God wants to do with you in your personal relationship with him. This is what God wants to do with you as he uses you to make disciples the way that Jesus talked about right before he went up back up to heaven. Like This is how God builds his church, the spirit of God, the word of God, the people of God, and that's it. Nothing else. We don't need anything else. Because what do you need that would be better than the spirit of God? The spirit of God himself living in you, empowering you, opening your heart and your mind to understand the things that God's saying to you. The Word of God, that like God has revealed Himself and spoken and had it recorded. Like This is the truth of history written down for us so that we can know God. And then the people of God, this family and this church that He's building, 
by his grace, by his gospel, by his spirit, to accomplish his purposes in the world. You've got everything you need. You've got everything you need. There's nothing better you can add to it. Nothing else would be enough. And so when we do this today, like this isn't just for this series and this isn't just for Sunday mornings. It really is. Let's do this in a way where we're saying, God, we believe that you are training us, teaching us, equipping us for what you want us to do in our lives. So I've got John 3 copied there. I told you I couldn't do two things at once. I just gave up trying. Paste it here. Make it where you can read it if I can. Thank you. I'll move the wheel here in a second. Bigger. Flight. Black background. I actually said it right this week. And then spacing. Good. Everybody see that? Move the wheel. We are going to take the Lord's Supper at the end. The kids will be coming in with us so that you can be thinking in that direction as we start to study here. Before I pray and read John 3 for us, as I was talking right then, this just popped in my head. We were in Ephesians, you know, most of last fall. Um, and listen to this section in chapter 4. Like I, I, just, I hope over and over and over that we can show you from the Bible, like this isn't our thoughts, these aren't our ideas. We're trying to listen to what God says in the Bible and be the type of church that he says we should be. And so this section when Paul's talking about like the leaders and the teachers that God, the people that stand up here and teach in lots of other settings, but that God's given to the church as gifts, he says... He gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers. And just here, right here, here's the purpose of whenever somebody stands up here to teach. This is what we should be doing. And I'm not saying this is what we always do or you know, we've drifted maybe into other stuff that's more typical of what happens when we're up here. But this is, we're trying to get back to this. Here's the purpose of when God gives those teachers to the church. To prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And then you skip on down to verse 15. It says, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. And so if you think right there in that section, it says, okay, the teachers are here to prepare the whole body for works of service and specifically to help the body, the whole body, every single person, grow to the level of maturity that we are all able to now speak the truth in love. Do you hear that in those verses? I mean, it's really compact right there that that the reason somebody stands up here should be that we are teaching the Word of God in such a way that All of us are growing to maturity, more prepared to now go and speak the truth in love. And that's what we're trying to replicate, right? That that whatever happens 
in this time is preparing you to be able to do that same thing. Whatever is said to you is preparing you to be able to say that to other people. However you're taught during this time, you're being prepared to teach others. Because that's the whole picture that God gives of the church right there. It's not come and sit here once a week and get something from an expert, because we don't have any experts here. But it's not come and get something from an expert and know a little more and come back next week and get something else from an expert and just be a lifelong learner. That is not the point. Not, not of the church, not of Christianity, not of following Jesus. The point is for us to all grow spiritually to the, to the place where we are equipped, prepared to go and be the church as we take the truth and love of God to the world and we are equipped in a way that we can speak to others what God is speaking to us in this time. And if you want to go read that section in Ephesians 4 there, whether it was 8 through 15 or 11 through 15, and, and really just like reflect on that this week, I think it does give a lot of insight into what we hope we can accomplish. And as you become more convinced that that's what God is saying in his word that should be happening during this time, I would ask that you would just pray that that's what will really happen, that God will show us how to better and better do that, and that we would grow strong in that way as a church. So that's why we're trying to do it. It's, it's not my idea or somebody else's idea. Like we really believe it's God's idea. Like we believe it's what God has said we should be doing. And so we're trying to do that. And so we're going to do that right now. I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to ask you to pray with me that God will speak from John 3 and that he'll teach us about himself and we will know him more. And he'll tell us what he wants us to know today. He'll speak to our hearts and be changing us. And then we'll read John 3 together and ask, what's this teach us about God? So let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time right now. More than anything in the entire world, Father, we need you. We need you to do what only you can do. We need your spirit and your power and your grace. And we come asking for it with confidence because of Jesus. Because of his perfect life and his sacrificial death and his powerful resurrection. We know that you have made promises to us. And so we come in Jesus' name and we ask right now, Father, that during this time you will pour out your spirit and that he will be the master teacher and that he will teach us and you will speak to us from your word as only you can. Build us up into your body. Help us grow into spiritual maturity, fully prepared and equipped to be followers of Jesus who go and make followers of Jesus by speaking the truth in love. Teach us those things right now. Work in our hearts in that way. We need you to do it, and we trust you to do it, and we ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, John 3. I love being in really familiar passages and then asking this question, what's it teach about God? Because it's crazy sometimes how it brings out brand... We, when we've come to a really familiar passage, but we've never focused on it with a really God-centered focus... We may have seen some things and some things on the outside that are true, but a lot of times there are some major things in the middle that we haven't gotten to because we haven't asked the right question. And so I'm really, I can't wait to see what pops out right here as we read John 3 and ask, what's this teach about God? So here we go. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who's come from God, for no one could perform the signs you were doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. 
How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus. And do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light, so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside, where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem, because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he's baptizing and everyone's going to him. To this, John replied, A person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater, I must become less. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. All right. What's that teach us about God? And I know there's a lot. So you pick whatever you feel like is standing out to you, whatever God's really impressing on your heart, and we'll go from there. 
Jesus always speaks the truth. Jesus always speaks the truth. Um, I've got a friend that I'm actually, we're studying through John together on Mondays right now. Um, he's a student pastor over in Cookville, and we call each other, and we've just made it through chapter 4. And so, like, the, all of me is tempted right now, like, to grab stuff from 1 and 2 and then 4 and, and just kind of put together what we're seeing, but I'm going to try to resist. But just, Jesus always speaks the truth. John keeps giving us these encounters that Jesus has with people, and there are people in all different places, and he always comes wherever they are. He meets them right where they are in their life and then speaks the truth to them. And with Nicodemus right here, you think about this Pharisee. You know, we've talked a lot about the religious leaders. Every time we end up in the Gospels, we end up having this conversation about these religious leaders who look really good on the outside and everybody kind of admires them and thinks that they're the holiest and the most righteous people and they've got all the right answers and they do all the right things and they follow all the right rules and they're really proud of who they are. You know, he, he's proud to be a Jew, part of God's people, you know, God's chosen people. He's proud of his race and his history and his nationality and his, his status among the Jews as a Pharisee and a religious leader. And so you think about, he's so proud of, of who he's been born as. And Jesus walks straight to the heart of the whole thing and says, that birth you're so proud of isn't enough. You need to be born again. You need another kind of birth. All this human birth and human lineage and human descent that you're so proud of, that doesn't make you right with God. You need a spiritual birth that only the Spirit of God can give to you. And so Jesus comes right to the heart of the issue and speaks the truth to Nicodemus right here in a way that cuts through everything that Nicodemus was trusting instead of God. And Jesus says, you need God more than you need all that. What else stands out to you? What truths about God? God calls us to be humble. And Cassie, if it's okay, I'm going to build on that. God humbles us. And the reason I say that is, so here Nicodemus is, all these things that he has to be proud of, and Jesus in one sentence shatters them. He's like, everything you're proud of, not something to be proud of. Not with God, anyway. You can be proud of it with humans. You can be proud of it in your religious circles. You can be proud of it in your temple. You can be proud of it in your own heart because, hey, I've accomplished this. I've done this. I've kept all You can be proud of it in those ways, but you can't be proud of it with God because it doesn't make you right with God. So he takes everything that Nicodemus would trust in and be proud of, and he destroys it in one sentence. And then even more, Nicodemus comes back and says, what are you talking about? What do you mean? And like, like these are the most educated, the most knowledgeable, the most religious people possible. And Jesus looks at him and says, I'm trying to talk to you in terms you can understand. And you still don't know what I mean. Like I, I haven't even given you the advanced course yet. Like when I, when I use earthly words and earthly illustrations about birth and being born and water, and you don't even get that, how, how are you Israel's teacher? <laughs> I mean, you, you heard him say that, right? Like the guy that's so proud about everything he knows and being Israel's teacher, and Jesus is like, let me humble you. And listen, it's not just Jesus saying, I'm going to humble you because you need to be humbled and I want to see it. It's not that. He knows that this is the only way to bring Nicodemus to a point of faith in Jesus. This is the only hope, like the only way that Nicodemus will ever get to the point where he might trust in Jesus is if he stops trusting in himself. 
The only way he would get to the place where he will say, my pride is in Jesus. My boast is in who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. All of my hope and my trust is in what God does for me and gives to me. Is if he gets past my pride's in me, my hope is what I have done or my hope is what I can do. Jesus has to destroy that if there's any hope for Nicodemus really believing the right things. Like there is a very real sense in which I mean, God does save us from sin and death and hell and Satan, all, all those things. God saves us from his own wrath. We saw that at the very end. Like the wrath of God is on us because of our sin until we believe in Jesus, and Jesus rescues us from that wrath. But there's also a real sense when you can just say, in a way, the biggest thing God has to save us from is us. Like the biggest thing God has to save you from is yourself. That you believe the wrong things and you trust the wrong things and you hope in the wrong things. That, that, that you, you find your security in the wrong things, you, you look for acceptance and approval in the wrong places, that, that all, everything that you would turn to and say, this validates me or this will, this will give me security or this, this gives me hope. And God's like, no, like, that's your stuff and your stuff is the problem. And so I've got to shatter that stuff till you've got nothing left except him. And think about the, when God humbles us. Think about the humility of God when he's like, look, I know you won't come to me if you've got any other option. And again, we're not God, and it's a great thing, but imagine I, I, if it was me, and, and I was like, and I would say, hey, choose me. And you're like, no, I'm going to trust this, and I'm this, and I'm going to try this, and I'm going to try this. At some point, I'd be like, look, if you're not going to come to me when that stuff's an option, don't come to me when it's not an option. I think that's what I would do. But God, in his humility and his grace and his compassion and his mercy and his love for us, he's like, I know that you're not going to come to me as long as you've got another choice. So I'm going to shatter everything else. I'm going to shatter everything else you trust in. I'm going to humble you. And then when you look to me and you're like, well, God, you're all I've got left. I guess I'll come to you. And God's like, I'll take you on those terms. Because it was never you earning his acceptance. Like he's, not, he's not even looking when you come to him. He's like, hey, that was a pretty good job coming to me. I think I'll take you. That's not what he's saying. That's a terrible job coming to me. <laughs> I had to force you to do it. I had to break everything in you before you would come to me. He's like, and out of grace, he does that for you. Out of love, he does that. He doesn't sit here and pat, Nicod- he doesn't pat Nicodemus on the back. And listen, we're really prone to do this in religious circles. Like, hey, you've done a good job. Look, look what a good job you've done. Look how you followed all the rules. Look how nice and pretty you look. Look how fancy it is. Can you teach more people to look more like you? And, you know, he pats Nicodemus on the back, and then Nicodemus like, thank you, I'll go, I'll go tell the Pharisees what a good teacher you are. And they have this kind of unspoken agreement now of I'll build you up and you build me up, and we can all feel good about ourselves in our little religious circle. Jesus doesn't do that. Like, he's not playing that religious game with Nicodemus. He's like, I'm going to speak truth, and I'm going to speak truth that humbles you because I know you need God more than you need to have your ego massaged. Like, your ego needs to be destroyed so that you will trust God. And so Jesus humbles us out of love. He humbles us to bring us to a place where he can give us what we need most, and it's not us. Like, we don't need us. We don't need more of us. We don't need a better version of us. We need him. We need more of him. We need the perfect version of him, the only perfect version that exists. And he's like, so I will. I'll come, and I'll speak truth, and sometimes it'll cut, and sometimes it'll break, and sometimes it'll crush, and sometimes it'll humble, but I'll speak truth in the hope that I can bring you to this place where you'll really trust me. What else stands out to you? Jesus is the only way to heaven. This is really, 
This is super relevant, probably all the time, but in our world today, you know, where there's, there, there's a certain strand of, of thought, or I hate to call it thought, a certain strand of feeling in our world today is basically whatever anybody believes is equally valid as long as they're really sincere. And in the end, we're all going to get to the same. And so, you know, whether, whether it's Jesus and Christianity or it's Muhammad and Islam or Buddha and Buddhism or Hinduism or the New Age movement, or just whatever you want to believe, if you'll be sincere in that, they're all equally valid. And, and the little, like, piece of truth in that is that, that we want to love everybody wherever they are, however right or wrong they are. And, and that, that all of us are equally wrong before God apart from Jesus. And all of us need Jesus equally. And so we don't reject, condemn, shun people just up front like, no, you're wrong, we disagree with you, we're done with you. Like, that's not the way we approach it. But Jesus, at the very same time where, you know, he's engaging Nicodemus here, but he's engaging Nicodemus in a way where he's like, hey, I love you and I'll have this conversation with you, but you're wrong. And in chapter 4, so we see Nicodemus here in chapter 3, this like really religious, good-looking person. In chapter 4, you've got the woman at the well who's had five husbands, is now living with somebody else who's not her husband, is completely shunned and rejected by her whole culture. She has to come and draw water in the middle of the day when it's hot and nobody else is there because she can't be around people in their social circles. And Jesus is the exact same way with her that he is with Nicodemus. A really religious person, really irreligious person, they're in the same place. He doesn't reject either one of them. He comes, he engages both of them, has a conversation with both of them, loves both of them, but then speaks truth to both of them and tells them both, Jesus saying, you need me. Like with Nicodemus, you trust in your birth, you need to be born again. The woman at the well, you're sitting here trying to get water out of this well. Let me tell you something, I'm the living water. And so it's not that we just reject those people outright, but there is this place where Jesus in John 14, you keep going, his I am the way and the truth and the life. And so what a lot of people will say sometimes is, you know, Jesus, Jesus is a great teacher. He was a great prophet. We, you know, he, he taught great things, but he's not the only way to God. There's other ways. Here's the deal. If Jesus is a great teacher and Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. If that's true, he's a great teacher. Because he has told you something very significant and very important that you desperately need to know. The only way to get to God is through Jesus. But if that's not true, like if there are 20 other ways, then Jesus is not a great teacher. Because the most important thing that he said repeatedly throughout his whole ministry about who he is, he was either wrong or lying. Like you do not have the option of, yeah, Jesus is a great teacher, but no. Like, either Jesus is a great teacher and these things are true, and if they're true, he excludes every other path to God. He excludes every other religion. He even excludes any version of Christianity that we would create on our own and try to pretend it's real. It is him or nothing when he talks. Like, that is the line that Jesus draws. So you either say, you know what, I see the way he taught, I see the way he lived, and I believe him. Like, I, I, what he says is true, and he is the only way. Or you say, no, I reject that. He's not the only way. And at that point, you have to say, he's not a great teacher. He does not leave open the option for you to sit on the fence and say, well, he's a great teacher, but I don't believe anything. No. Like, just make a decision. I mean, and he says this. He's like, you're either with me or against me. And then it flips around up. He's like, you're either against me or for me. There is no middle ground with him in that sense. Jesus is that great and that significant. 
You can't look at it and be like, well, yeah, I'll pick and choose, I'll take a piece. He doesn't leave that option open for you. So Jesus is the only way to heaven, the only way to God, the only way to be made right with God. And the reason for that, when we set it in the larger context of, of the entire story in the gospel, is that if we really believe what Jesus is saying here in John 3, we're wrong with God. And there's nothing humanly that we can do to make ourselves right with God. Like we have sinned against God and turned away from God. And we, in, in our rebellion, we owe God a price. We have a debt that we can't pay. We can't make it right. And because God is holy and righteous and just, and he's a judge that will look at things and say what they really are, he'll speak the truth. When he sees our sin, he's going to say what it is. And when he says, hey, this is, this is what your sin is in the depths of your heart. And this is the price, the debt, the cost of that sin. He's going to say what's true. There's no way to avoid that. The wrath of God remains on them, the way that John 3 ends. That's our state. And so either that's just where we end up, and there's no way to fix it ourselves, or there has to be a solution from God himself. Like humans cannot fix it. We need God to fix it. And that's what Jesus is saying. He says, God gives the Spirit without limit. He'll, you'll be born spiritually. There'll be a spiritual birth. Born of the Spirit. And in verse 15 here, Jesus tells us how it happens. Or 14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. And do you all know that reference there in verse 14? You know, one of the things we talk about is how the Bible is just one connected story. That reference is all the way back from the book of Exodus, Maybe. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, they all kind of run together. The story when they're in the wilderness, after they've, they've come out of slavery in Egypt, they're in the wilderness, maybe Numbers, and they disobey God over and over and over. They don't trust God. They grumble and complain against God. They start worshiping false gods already. Like The, uh, the Moabites are able to lead them into idolatry. And so these poisonous snakes, like, so, I mean, you, you see here, like, this is the gospel in a nutshell right here. They sin against God. God has already been gracious to them, rescued them out of slavery, but they sin against God, don't believe God, don't trust in God, and so these poisonous snakes come into the camp as judgment for their sin, as punishment, the wrath of God. And so when they're, they're getting bit, and these snakes, they're dying when they get bit, but they cry out to God for mercy, and God has Moses form this bronze snake and lift it up on a pole. And so like, the snakes are the source of death, and God turns it in to the sign of life because anyone who will just, they don't do anything. They just look to that bronze. Like if they will look at that snake, God heals them and rescues them. They're dying because they deserve to die. They're getting bit by snakes because they deserve to get bit by snakes because of the way they've responded to God. And God says, even now, when, that's what, when you deserve wrath, here's grace and mercy. Just look to my grace and mercy. You can't earn it. You can't get it. If you want what you earn and what you deserve, then die from that snake bite. But all you got to just look up here, look to me, and I will rescue you. I will heal you. I will save you. And so that's this story in the Old Testament. And now here Jesus comes, and he's like, hey, that was about me. I know that it happened 1500, when he's talking 1,500 years ago. But he's like, just like, just like those Israelites deserve to die for their rebellion against God, and yet the very source of death for them became the source of salvation for him, so will I be lifted up, right? The cross, the symbol of death, the source of death, 
becomes the symbol of life for us. And he says, just, just look to Jesus. You deserve to die. You should be on that cross. This is what you deserve from God. And Jesus steps in and says, I will take the sign of wrath and I'll turn it into the sign of grace. I'll take the sign of condemnation and I'll turn it into the sign of God's love for you. I'll take the sign of your judgment and I'll turn it into the sign of salvation. And all you have to do is just look to him. Just look to him. You deserve to die. You do. So so stop trying to earn and work and think you can get it. You can't. But he'll give it. He'll rescue you. And so he says, so you're you're wrong with God. And the only way you can be made right is if Jesus makes you right. He's the only one who could take all of our sin on himself and bear it and pay the price for it. It's only if God himself, in the form of God the Son, were to come down and say, I'll do for them what they can't do for themselves, and I'll pay. Like what, what God's justice demands, God's grace says, I'll pay it. Only God's grace could have enough riches to satisfy God's justice on our behalf. And God says, that's exactly what I've done for you. But look, there's no other way. Muhammad can't do that for you. Muhammad's you, he's me. Buddha can't do that for you. He's you, he's me, he's just another person. The New Age movement can't do that for you. Scientific materialism and naturalism can't do it for you. Worldly success and fame and wisdom can't do it for you. The approval of your parents or your friends or your children can't do it for you. Nobody else can do this for you. Nobody else can do this for you. But Jesus can and Jesus has and Jesus offers it all to you. And all you've got to do is look to him. Like just look to him. What else stands out to you? Yeah. Jesus is the ultimate first person teacher. Um, this stood out to me when we were reading. I'm going to try to find it again real quick. Where does he say we and us? Is it earlier? You know, even even these, these people throughout history who claim to be great teachers, you know, just um, in our history lesson this week with the girls, I was reading to them, we studied uh, Buddha. And one of the things the history book pointed out was that Buddha didn't claim to be God. He, in fact, didn't even believe really in a personal God or a heaven. There was this in, inward state of peace that became nirvana for you. But like a, a great moral teacher, a great religious teacher like that, whose teaching has influenced millions of people around the world throughout history, he never makes a claim, I am God. And he never makes the claim of, hey, I can do for you what you can't do for yourself. He says, here's the right way to live, follow it, and you can get at peace yourself. Like, it's a very different language than something like this. Very truly, this is Jesus. Very truly, I tell you, we, come here, Red, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. So first of all, already like, God and me. That's what he's saying right here. When I speak to you, this is me and God speaking to you. Like he's making himself one with God. And he's not saying, here, here, me as this human, I'll tell you how to be right with God. 
Or he's not saying, me as this human, I'll give you a good religious path. He shows up and he's like, I am the path. And I am one with God. And the things that I say to you, like I am God speaking to you about what God will do for you that you can't do for yourself. And that's why all throughout John you get all these first person where he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. The one we saw last week, I am the resurrection and the life. You know, in John 8 where he said, before Abraham was born, I am. I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am the gate. Like all these, like Jesus shows up and he teaches about himself. Like he doesn't teach about a way. He doesn't teach about a path. He doesn't teach about a set of religious truths for you to understand. He doesn't teach about a set of religious behaviors for you to follow. He teaches about himself in the first person, again, in a unique way. And so again, either... C.S. Lewis does this great too. I think it's in Mere Christianity. Like either you believe what Jesus has said, and at that point you can say he is, he's a great teacher. The things that he teaches are the most important things anybody's taught in the history of the world. And because he's such a great teacher, I believe them. And what I believe is what he says about himself, that he is the Son of God. He is the one and only Son of God. He is the unique second person of the Godhead come down in the flesh to give grace and truth to us in a way that only he can. Like either that's who he is, or you have to say, I have to reject all of his teaching. Like he's wrong about the thing he says most often. He's wrong about the biggest thing. If he's that wrong about that, how can I trust him about anything? And so C.S. Lewis says you've got three options with Jesus. Either he's a liar, like he, he intentionally deceived people and said, I'm the way and the truth and the life when he knew he wasn't. Or he's a lunatic He's just crazy. He thought he was, but he wasn't. Or he's Lord. And he conveniently alliterated those for you so they would stick in your mind. So do you, like when you encounter what Jesus says and, and how he treats people and the love and the mercy he shows to people, does he seem like a liar who's intentionally deceiving people? Does he seem crazy? If not, your only other option is what he said is true and what he said is he's the Lord of lords and the King of kings. Those are your only options. He is the ultimate first-person teacher. There is nobody like Jesus. And listen, this is why we want to follow Jesus, and we want our lives to be about us knowing Jesus, and we want this church to be Jesus' church and built on Jesus and focused on declaring Jesus. There's nobody else like him, and there's nothing else that's worth us getting together and doing this about. Like if it's about you or me or even this church, it's a waste compared to him. Like it's about him. It's because of him. It's for him. It's by him. It's through him. It is Jesus and Jesus alone. There's nobody like Jesus. Another truth about God that stands out to you or something God's saying to your heart this morning. That's so good. Jesus is the light of the world. But we're afraid. Whoa. To come into that light because our sins will be exposed. I thought about this while we were reading out loud. Like something stood out to me right here. I think it's a great place for us to, to wrap up our teaching time and move into the Lord's Supper here in a minute. So as, as we talk through this last truth, just be preparing your heart and your mind. 
for what Jesus has done so that you can be right with God. Um, and I'm going to talk for a few minutes here, so I'm not going to have anybody get the kids just yet, <laughs> otherwise they'll be in here too long. But when, when we're finished with this, we'll bring them in in a few more minutes. So when Jesus says this down here, let's start with the Jesus is the light of the world. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world. Like, I, I, Jesus is saying, like, I have brought the revelation of God. I've made it possible for you to see God and see the truth about God. I'm, I'm bringing to light who God is. But people love darkness instead of light because their deeds are evil. And here's why. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. And so Jesus says, you know somewhere deep inside of you that you're not okay. You know you're not right with God. You know some of the deepest, darkest things hidden in the depths of your heart that if anybody else saw them, your deepest fear is that they would reject you and hate you and condemn you. Your fear is what they would think of you if they, if they really knew. If they really knew. And you try your best, especially in the religious world, let's stuff all that down. Let's hide all that. Let's polish it up with something better. Because we can't let that be exposed. We can't let that, it can't be known that that's who I really am. Well, here's the deal. God already knows. He, he knows all of it. He knows the things that you don't know yet. The things that you do know about how wretched your heart is, you only know them because God has shown them to you. And there's things you haven't even been ready to see. It's like he exposes this, and you finally come to the place where you believe him about that, and he's like, now, let, now let's get to the real stuff that I really want to show you, the stuff that we really need to work on in your heart. But he already knows. As a matter of fact, he knows so much that that's why Jesus came to start with. Like if God didn't know how wretched your heart is, if God didn't know how desperate of a sinner you are and how desperately in need of grace and salvation you are, there would be no purpose for Jesus to come. Jesus says, I didn't come for the righteous, but for sinners. Now, he came because he already knew you were a sinner. He knew you needed to be saved. Like it's... It's just an assumption up front for Jesus when he walks into the world. He knows he's not coming to get good people. He's not coming because you're good enough. He's not coming because you deserve it. He's coming because you don't. And you're hopeless and helpless unless he comes. So we are afraid Okay, how awful I am. The worst stuff about me is going to be exposed. And when it is, people are going to reject me. But listen to God's word to you. He's sending the light into the world. And the light's going to expose the worst things, the darkest places of your heart. And we're afraid of what will happen when that happens. Here's what God says. For God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world. He just tells you up front, when the light comes into the world and I expose the worst things about you, it is not that I'm going to condemn you because of them. I don't expose them to condemn you. Can you just hear that word from God right now? God's heart is not to condemn you. When God exposes you and humbles you, the way we're talking about with Nicodemus, when God breaks you, when God shatters everything in your life that you've trusted in that's wrong, it's not to condemn you. but to save the world through Jesus. God wants to rescue you. 
God wants to come and get you in that darkness and bring you out into the light, not so that you'll be condemned for all those dark things, but so that you'll be saved from those dark things and you can be with him in the light. And he says, whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned. Like, that's it. <laughs> like, final word from God right there. You believe in Jesus, and Jesus is the light, and all this stuff gets exposed. And someday, like at the end of time, when we all stand before God, all of it's getting exposed for everybody to see. And listen, if that sounds like your worst nightmare, join the club. Like, I still, I still have stress dreams that I'm back in college and I've forgotten to attend a class all semester, and it's the last day of the semester, and I realize I'm going to fail that class. Because that's how bad my performance anxiety is. Like, I'm just going to fail. And what, what difference does it make if you fail that class? Take it again. It's like, everybody's going to know. I forgot. I was stupid enough. I didn't go to class. I didn't do what I was supposed to. I made an F in that class. Like, any time, like, it, it's, it's been a lot lately, by the way, doing this this way, when I haven't prepared at all and I don't know what's coming. Like the first two weeks, I had those dreams like every night for two weeks. I'm not kidding. And, and different versions of it. Or I show up to like a football game and I don't have my helmet or I don't have my cleats or I don't have my jersey and I'm the only one that doesn't have what I need to go out on the field and I'm sitting in the locker room, the coach is so mad at me. I, I just I have those dreams. So imagine what it's like. Everybody's going to know everything. And it feels like the worst nightmare ever. They're going to look and they're going to know. And what are they going to think when they finally know? And then God says, I'm the only one that matters and I don't condemn you. I know it all and I see it all and I accept you and I love you and I'm going to save you and I'm going to make you right forever. Like he's just telling you up front. And the only thing, the only thing that will condemn you it's not anything that you've done. It's not anything in your heart. It's not anything that you've hidden that you think nobody else sees. It's none of that. It's not like, oh, if this comes out, that'll condemn me. God's like, no, the only thing that will condemn you is if you don't believe in the name of God's one and only Son. It's the only way. Like, Jesus will make you right with God. God will accept you in Jesus. God will love you forever in Jesus. But outside of Jesus, there's no other way to be right with God. Outside of Jesus, you will be condemned. You will, you will stand on your own, and God will judge you on your own, and you won't measure You just won't measure up. You won't. But in Jesus, you can stand in Jesus and be covered by Jesus and clothed in Jesus' righteousness, and God will accept you in Jesus. And so here's the thing I want you to see now. When God tells you up front, I'm not going to condemn you. When you step into the light, who is Jesus? Jesus is the light of the world. When you step into the light and you believe in Jesus, I won't condemn you for any of it. And I want you to see right here, when you believe that, see what this does. It gives you the freedom to confess all of it. That, like if that's really what God promises up front, that promise takes away this fear. The fear of, I can't let this be known because I'll be rejected if this is known. I can't let this be known because God will condemn me if this is known. I can't let this be known because he won't love me. He's already, he's already taken that away. He's like, no, I do love you. I do accept you. I do receive you. I will save you. He has promised. And so the question is, do you believe his promise or do you believe your fear? If you believe your fear, you'll keep hiding. 
If you believe his promise, you'll find the freedom to come out into the light and just say, yeah, this is who I am. This is how wretched I am. This is how needy I am. This is how spiritually bankrupt I am. I confess it. God, I believe you. I believe, do what you said. Take me, accept me, love me. You're my only hope. But up front, he gives you the freedom to do it. He tells you, you don't have to be afraid for me to see what's going on inside of you. You don't have to be afraid for me to see your struggles. You don't have to be afraid for me to see your sin. You don't have to be afraid for me to see your brokenness because Jesus has dealt with it. Right? It's not that he's, tre- he's not treating it like it's not a big deal. He's not sweeping it under the rug. He's not ignoring it. He's not minimizing it. He's just saying Jesus has taken care of it the way it needs to be taken care of. Jesus was enough. It's a huge deal. But Jesus is a huge Savior. And he's taking care of this huge deal for you in a huge way. And so now you don't have to worry about it. That is his word to you. That is his gospel to you. And it is Jesus and Jesus alone, the only way. And so what this does then, it creates a place where we can come to God and be honest about, these are the places where I need you to work in me. I need help here. Because if you don't admit it to God, there's no way that you're actually going to admit it to yourself and start working. Like, with the stuff that you hide, you know what happens when you hide? It just festers, and it rots, and it gets worse and worse and worse. And you may have to get more creative and how to cover it up and hide it, but listen, it is still there. But that stuff that you bring to me, like, this is what it really is. Like, this is the stuff that lives inside of me. The people pleasing and the performance anxiety and the, the belief that somehow I'm going to achieve approval and just... I mean, all the different things, the desire for whatever it is for you, for success, for fame, for approval, for money, for power, for prestige, for acceptance, for love, like all these things that are in me that drive me that aren't God, that control me all the time because I'm hiding them and I can't show them. They're always controlling me, but I don't want to admit how controlled I am by them. When you bring them out in the open, you know, this is what it is. I'm telling you, immediately, 95% of that power is broken. Because now you're like, this is what it really is. Let's talk openly about this. And God goes to work on your heart. And God's, he's telling you it's safe for him to go to work on your heart. He works as a surgeon who's healing you. Right? Not as some kind of attacker who's trying to kill you. Like it is a surgeon's scalpel and not a murderer's knife when he comes for you. And so he's telling you, you can come out into the light and you can confess to him. But then the other thing it does when we start to believe that and we're his people and his body, is it's supposed to create an environment where we do that with one another. This is why we, we encourage you almost constantly to be in community groups, to share life with one another, to have people where you're like, hey, here's the truth about what was going on inside of me in that moment. Here, here's what I'm struggling with right now. Here's what I'm thinking through. Here, will you pray for me about this? Because you speak it that way to one another and you bring it out into the open. And God uses his body and his people to help you deal with it. That is how God heals you. That is how God works. And he's saying that he's the type of God where you don't have to be afraid to do that. And he's creating the type of family where he wants us to not have to be afraid to do that with each other. It's the polar opposite of Nicodemus and the Pharisees. We've got to look good. We've got to look great. We've got to look pretty and fancy. You know, give us all of our trappings while we train for our next boxing match, it's going to all look really great. And God's like, that's not what I want from you. I want the real thing. I want your hearts exposed. I want your hearts, because he wants to work in your heart. He wants to change your heart. And if somebody wants to go ahead and bring the kids in, let Teresa know we're ready. We're going to take the Lord's Supper in just a second. But I want you to think about this last thought here. 
Jesus looks at you and he knows how broken you are. And he says, my body will break for you so that your brokenness can be healed. Jesus looks at you and he knows how dirty you are. And he says, my blood will pour out so that you can be washed clean. Jesus looks at you and he knows that you deserve to die in the desert. He knows that you deserve to die on that cross. He knows it. And he looks at you and he says, no, I'll be lifted up in your place. I'll die for you. I'll take that cross for you. He says, I'll do it all for you. And all you have to do, all you have to do is look at him. Just look to him. Whoever looks to him and believes. Saved. Yes, saved forever. And, and, and that's the best part. Like forever. Eternal life is in this several times. Forever with God in heaven. Right relationship with God. The joy with God in heaven. But also, listen, saved right now from all of your fear. All of your fear that God's going to condemn you. All of your fear that God's going to reject you. All of your fear that you aren't enough. All of your fear that God's remembering all these things about you and saying, you shouldn't have done that, you shouldn't have done that. I just don't know if you're ever going to make it. That's not how God sees you. Right now, Jesus is saving you from all of that. And he's saying, God loves you and God accepts you. When you had nothing right about yourself, God came to get you. And that's why we take the Lord's Supper, is to remember that. We need to be reminded of that every day. I need to be reminded every day that because of Jesus, God loves me and doesn't condemn me. God accepts me and doesn't reject me because of Jesus. And so we remind ourselves of that right now. And then we're going to worship and we're going to say, thank you, God, that this is true. We're going to have people down here for you to pray with for you to, if you want to talk to somebody about something God's saying to you right now, or maybe this is the first time for you to say, I believe who Jesus says he is. I believe that he's the only way to be right with God, and I want to start trusting him and following him today. We'd love to talk with you about that. But right now, if you'll take this small piece of bread that reminds us of Jesus' body. Jesus took this with his disciples the night before he was crucified, and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And Jesus took the cup that night. He said, this cup is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins do this in remembrance of me. Let's pray together and ask God to be doing this in our hearts and then we'll worship together. Father, thank you that Jesus is the one and only Son of God, the only one who could make us right with you the only one who is the way and the truth and the life. And Father, when he is the only one, when there is no other option, thank you that you gave us that one. 
Thank you that you gave us what we need and everything that we need in Jesus. Help us, Father, to believe the full extent of your love and grace to us in Jesus. And I pray that your love will transform us and set us free in such a way that we can live with bold confidence for you as your church, as your people, led by you and used by you for your purposes of grace in your world. Father, captivate us with your grace and love to us and may they flow out of us to others. We ask you to do it in us by your spirit because you are the only one who can and we believe that and we desperately need it and we trust you for it. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Stand and sing with us.